Welcome back. This is the Association of Academic Physiatrists podcast. I am Benjamin Gill, your host for this episode. Today we are interviewing two PMNR sports medicine physicians. Dr. Michael Kadavi and Dr. Brittany Moore are located in Overland Park, Kansas, where they have a robust private practice and treat amateur and professional athletes alike. They will discuss their motivations and challenges in private practice, how to blend academics into clinical work, and their approach to sharing their unique skill sets throughout the community. This podcast will be especially insightful to residents considering a career in sports medicine and ultrasound procedures. Let's get to it. All right, well, welcome to this podcast. Dr. Michael Kadavi, can you tell us some about yourself? Sure. I'm a PMNR sports medicine physician in Kansas City, from Kansas City, did my residency training at University of Missouri, which is the great residency program that you are at yourself, Dr. Gill. And then after my really great training at University of Missouri, I went to Stanford Sports Medicine Fellowship, which was a very sports and uh, team physician-oriented fellowship where I did a, a, a one-year fellowship before moving back home to Kansas City. So at Apex Orthopedics, which is the practice both Dr. Moore and I are part of, my I have a you know 40 to 45 hour per week uh, busy uh, clinic with sports injuries and some spines. And then I have a few teams that I am very fortunate to take care of on the sideline that have really been rewarding. The professional soccer team, Sport in Kansas City, as well as their second team, Sport in Kansas City 2, the Kansas City Ballet, in my early years in Kansas City, I was one of the team physicians for University of Kansas Athletics, especially the, the runners, the track and field cross-country teams, and uh, take, help out with some high schools in town. And so those have really been a nice balance to the busy clinic schedule. Dr. Moore, do you care to share some about yourself also? Yeah, so I'm Britt Moore. I did my residency at Mayo Clinic Rochester and PMR. And I went on and stayed for fellowship. I did sports medicine fellowship, uh, which was a PMR sports medicine fellowship at Mayo Rochester. And then I stayed on staff in Mayo Rochester in the sports and PMR department for the little over a year. And eventually always knew I wanted to come back to Kansas City, which is where I'm from. Moved back to Kansas City, um, joined the practice with Dr. Kadavi at Apex and am now in my first six months here in private practice, which was a pretty big switch from kind of this giant academic uh, practice to now uh, private practice. Um, like Dr. Kadavi, I see non-operative musculoskeletal, I see sports, I see some spine. Um, I cover some uh, sports as well. Avila, which is a college in town, Sunflower FC, which is um, a soccer offshoot and um, intermittently when Kadavi can't see his Casey Ballet or other people last minute, then I'll fill in for him as well. Well, fantastic. You both certainly have a very busy practice in Overland Park, Kansas. Tell me more about what drew you into that sort of setting. Um, so my specific circumstance, I was more looking for location. I wanted to come back to Kansas City. I absolutely loved um the practice that I had up in Minnesota. I loved the environment. I loved everything. I wanted to replicate that as much as possible, which you'd think would be academics um, and looking into academics in Kansas City. But after doing research, it was 
exceedingly clear that the most similar practice would be at Apex. And specifically, the things I was looking for is friendly, nice people that are multidisciplinary. So we have orthopedic surgeons and then Kadavi and I are PMR non-operative. And I absolutely love having that um, open discussions with your orthopedic colleagues and ability to kind of talk cases together and figure out what's the best management. And the personalities of the surgeons at Apex are just so fantastic. I uh, That was a huge drawing factor. I really liked how um, involved Kadavi was with uh, kind of every other aspect, quite similar to Mayo in that he's involved with uh, sports, with sporting teams. He's involved with uh, kind of research. And um, in terms of the quality of kind of sports, non-operative MSK uh, practice that I wanted, it really was Apex was and is kind of the cutting edge, in my opinion, of uh, non-operative musculoskeletal medicine in, in the area that we work. I'll answer that same question real quick because I have the same answer. I, I really wanted to go into academics and I applied for academics in private. And my school was just a high school was just a few miles from Dr. Moore's high school uh, and in the same County. And so location was very important to me. I, I, I ended up realizing that that was the most important and ends up that apex is literally across the street from my high school, which isn't the only reason I went there, obviously, but what, what I was uh, able to figure out in the interview process is that kind of like Brittany said, you can do the academic side of things with teaching and research at the same time as you're in a busy clinic. The benefit of the private practice is you're your own boss and you can really do whatever you want and create your clinic and your work time and your off work time however you want. Well, that segues into something that I found very unique about your practice. I think you both have what I would call a private demics approach that you're doing with a very busy private practice on the clinical side, in addition to heavy involvement in organizations, teaching, lectures, and having learners. Dr. Kadavi, how have you sculpted that over the past months and years? Yeah, it's it takes a little more work than when you're in academics. In private practice, you don't have residents and medical students who know about you. PM&R rarely has growing now, but when I was in medical school, PM&R was not a required rotation. Uh, and so when I was in med school, I still had to go out and find PM&R. But as a private practice physician, you have to let med schools know that you're there and that you want to take students how often. And that just takes a little more time. It's extremely possible. And you really just have to let the schools know, the residencies know, the fellowships know that you are not only willing to take students, but that you're going to give them a good experience. You're going to teach them. You're going to take the time to, you're going to give them attention. You're going to take the time before clinic, during clinic, after clinic to um, focus on where they are in their training and go over cases with them, give them uh, some reading to do, and then go over with them the, the next day or uh, through, throughout their rotation. Um, and and I, I just absolutely love teaching. Teaching before research, those are in that order are my academic passions. And I can't imagine my career without having, without be, passing on some of the amazing mentorship that I had at KU in my med school and then my just phenomenal mentors in residency at MU and, and fellowship. My mind just 
was very excited about all the mentorship that I received. And I know that's not always easy in PM&R because there aren't a lot of sports medicine physiatrists out there. So it's, it's, it's uh, important to me to be able to give back. You've alluded to taking med students into your practice on a regular basis, publishing research, teaching at the national level to other practitioners, such as ultrasound courses and so forth. Do you feel this sort of practice could be replicated by a resident in training looking to go into PM&R sports? I don't see any reason academics can't be achieved in a private practice the way that Dr. Moore and I do. Teaching is the easiest thing to do, teaching um, residents fellows, and then teaching on the national level seems a little daunting at first, but it really just requires staying at the cutting edge of research, knowing what's out there, and then submitting applications to teach something and having a group, good group of people, connections that you made from your residency fellowships, and then from onward to create a, a good two, three, four person um, a course at on the national level. So I know Dr. Moore and I both taught uh, at AAPM&R, and if you haven't seen her lectures, they were just totally fantastic, and it's it's really exciting to be part of that group. I think in private practice, being part of teaching is important for so many reasons, but if nothing else, it just keeps you excited about what you're doing for the rest of your career. There hasn't been a day that I've woken up in the morning not excited to go to work, and part of that is because new ideas are going through my mind from lectures that people like Dr. Moore are are giving. And then knowing that I have something coming up, it just changes the way you think. So you're always thinking what what's new, what's a better way to approach a patient or how to treat them. Now, Dr. Moore, you were talking about how this is a practice with several subspecialized orthopedic surgeons, two physiatrists practicing sports medicine also. How do you integrate your PM&R training into this multidisciplinary practice? Yeah, that's a good question. I it was a little easier for me because Kadavi was already part of the group, and so they all the orthopedic surgeons kind of knew what a PMR, what a physiatrist was, and what you can bring to the table, and kind of the value of ultrasound at times, and of injections and other procedures. Um, and so one of the things that I tried to focus on when I first came was. Um, having conversations with each of the orthopedic uh, physician and their specific specialty and saying, um, these are things that I would do for this specific surgeon in my other practice, and this is helpful in that venue, and I can see this or I can do that or uh, whatnot, and then just kind of maintaining that open dialogue with the surgeons about cases on both of our ends, on my end, kind of asking questions of patients that I have and having them know that I'm open for any questions from their end. And so that uh, collaborative spirit is something that I absolutely love and I need in practice because I don't know everything. And I like having, um, like Kadavi was alluding to, kind of uh, a lot of new ideas and thoughts and having um, a practice where there's more than just kind of you and your specialty, I think, helps breed that. I think we could suppose that if you were going into an academic practice, you would be sort of in, integrated into the system and patients could be filtered toward you with some understanding of the services that you provide. In the private realm, how do you market yourselves, both as you alluded to in connection with the orthopedic surgeons, but also to patients on a broad scale? There seems to be still be a lack of understanding out there about what PM&R is specifically and the special skill set that you both provide from your PM&R training. 
That's a good question and one that um, I kind of found out as I went through the process of transitioning to private practice rather than necessarily being prepared for it. But it's a lot of networking, um, which uh, you don't practice much in medical school or residency, but um, particularly for where we practice, we practice in Kansas and Missouri, but primarily Kansas. Um, and in Kansas, the laws for physical therapy are unique and a patient can go to PT without a doctor script. And so one of the things that I think Kadavi actually instituted and then our marketing people kept for me when I came on was really hitting the physical therapy groups hard because those are going to be some of your top tier referrals of patients who, all right, we tried kind of a, a good or basic therapy program, still having issues. Let's have someone take a look who is kind of well-versed in conservative management. And if they need a surgical referral, we're, well, we have access for that as well. And so it's a lot just getting to know your community and, and marketing yourself in terms of what you offer and, uh, and, and whatnot. Um, talking with the, phys- the other physicians in my practice is easy because we have a pretty small or a smaller practice. Um, we've, we market to kind of other local private groups as well, because that tends to be a little higher yield than going to kind of the giant academic centers where they're just going to kind of in-house refer. Um, what are your thoughts on on that, Dr. Kadavi? I second all that stuff. I don't know if I could say it that eloquently. To me, I, I think of, I'm going to repeat a lot of things you said, because I think you said it well. Marketing I isn't a word that goes through my head a lot because it really is just networking and marketing has this connotation of trying to force someone else to send patients your way. Whereas networking, which is really the same thing, is getting to know people, develop relationships, letting them know what you do, finding out who who's best, what PT is best with shoulders, what PT is best with spine, what PT is best with your elite high level athletes, because not all PTs are created the same. And as I've gotten to know my community, primary care physicians are desperate for someone who can take care of their knee pain patients and their shoulder. They're desperate for someone who's going to take really high quality care of their patients. That's what they really want. Uh, so networking to me is really enjoyable marketing and thinking of, <laughs> I'm going to go out and I'm going to get people to send me patients a lot less enjoyable. And I think networking with that attitude is more successful because it builds long-term relationships. The other thing is no matter what setting you're in, even if you're in a giant academic setting or a hospital system, you're always a, you're always a networker. You're always a marketer. You always have to sell yourself. If there is something you want to do or see more than you can go out, make relationships with the neurologists and orthopedic surgeons and PTs and other folks at your academic or private large hospital system so that you see more of one specific thing that you really like seeing. And an example of that is Dr. Moore and her carpal tunnel releases, which is something very new, exciting, and uh, is really going to change how we think of some of our minimally invasive surgeries. And to, to do that, the first step is letting people know that she's doing that. And that is whether she's in a hospital or an academic setting, uh, someone has to let people know that she's doing it. And not only that, let them know that it works and it's safe. 
And no one is really better to do that than Dr. Moore herself to, to, to talk to them. And I, I just can't express how important that is and was certainly something that I was looking for in a partner that they would be able to talk to people and be good at that. It's not easy. And Dr. Moore is just blown out of the water. I think her wait list is now three weeks, which is unimaginable for someone who started just in August. Well, thank you. If you would have asked me if I was good at talking to people outside of like patient encounters before all of this, I would not have said I was good at marketing or anything like that. But I think you made a really good distinction that uh, networking is just kind of describing what you do. And so um, like when I go and talk about the practice, it's from a base of this is how I approach this problem. These are This is how I think through injuries and how if you send me someone, how I'm going to manage and treat them rather than you just standing up there and saying, send me your patients. And at the same time, I, I remember my first few months doing the same thing you're doing and how much I learned about the people who I work with in my community. And not just physical therapists, primary care physicians, some of them really love women's okay. health. Some of them really love men's health. Some of them really like a certain diagnosis or type of population. And so then when someone asks you, hey, who's the best physical therapist for this? You know you know who it is. There's really no other way. I think I have met and talked with over 150 physical therapists in Kansas City over the last six years, which sounds like a lot, but geez, it's been wonderful. A little bit at a time and Dr. Moore's probably met with almost that, <laughs> and this is just in a few months, and these are people who now, not only are they referring her patients because they know how good she is at what she does, and, 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 and knows, know what she does in particular, but um, they people that she can then be a better resource for her patients by knowing who to send them to for what. Yeah, and it was quite fortunate um, that Apex allowed me to have as much time to network to different therapy groups because as I alluded to, what I wanted in practice was like a multidisciplinary practice where I can talk to different people. And so in my practice, it's it's orthopedic surgeons of different specialties, subspecialties, uh, and um, Dr. Kadavi, uh, but there's not that therapy component like I'm used to. And so the networking allows you to make those connections. So, you know, all right, this is like Dr. Kadavi was saying, this is my shoulder person. This is my, uh, young female athlete who doesn't like to talk and you have to get her to open up. This is my, um, baseball athlete. Who's not going to slow down and, you know, kind of who, what personalities will best fit all of your patients along with the injury that you are going through. Still that team approach developed in PM&R training exactly. just spread throughout the community. Yeah. How do you go about approaching all these practices? And Dr. Kadavi, you were the first one to really do this on a broad scale at your group before Dr. Moore joined. How did you make those connections? Dr. Dev Mishra at Stanford, an orthopedic surgeon who sat next to me in my office with Dr. Fredrickson, gave me some advice before I came to Kansas City, which was anytime you have a referral, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether they just happen to be seeing this physical therapist and they come to see you, call that person and or send them an email. And so my first, I still do that actually, my first year I did that for almost every new patient who came in my door asking them, who's their PT, who's their primary care physician? And I would just, when they left the clinic at the end of the day, just start calling people, sending emails. And so I, I, I met a lot of physical therapists that way and I, I didn't just 
tell him about myself, I had a patient to talk about. And so we would go over my thought process in the patient. I would ask them a couple questions. It is very much always a multidisciplinary approach. These PTs have, just like on the inpatient unit, they have so much um, knowledge and experience with your patient that you just don't have in your 20 to 30 minutes doing a new patient evaluation. They'll see things, they'll tell you things, they'll have some social insights that affect how to treat them. Uh, it, that, that really affects my decision-making process of how quickly do I need to get him into uh, some other discipline sooner or later. Um, so that, that was my, my main way to, to start. Then once I meet someone, then I started giving lectures and, and they, they love, PTs love that stuff as long as it's a good high quality lecture and, you know, you're not talking down to them and they really like question and answer periods. That's something I learned throughout. Um, but those are techniques that got me busy really quickly. And I see Dr. Moore doing the exact same thing. I'm, sh I'm sure she, she's, she, her, this is fresher in her, her mind than, 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 than mine. I know she's met a lot of people that I hadn't met beforehand also. I'd say my most uh, kind of fitting referrals today are from the physical therapist, meaning they're the least likely to no-show or cancel last minute. They have kind of uh, fulfilling from my end um, pathologies that we can kind of work away at to improve or or make sure there's not something terrible going on. Um, and so uh, in PMR, you always uh, lean heavy on your therapist, and that's true for private practice. <laughs> One of the defining characteristics of a physiatry sports medicine physician in my mind is certainly their skill with ultrasound, and you both have taken that above and beyond. We've already heard a little bit about ultrasound-guided procedures. How do you talk about that with surgeons and with other practitioners throughout the community? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, Dr. Kadavi and I are, are certainly ultrasound very, very heavy, uh, and I think sharing why we enjoy ultrasound so much and what it can bring to this specific patient or injury or whatnot can help open people's eyes. And so, um, for instance, uh, like with my shoulder surgeon or one of my main shoulder surgeons, um, I've, for whatever reason, absolutely have become my favorite injection right now is a rotator interval approach for glenohumeral joint injection for adhesive capsulitis. And so I brought that up with him. I showed him some pictures and kind of gave him the literature uh, and made it more of a specific, all right, ultrasound. When you see an adhesive capsulitis patient, you can do this and this specific injection might give you better outcomes than one of the other regular approaches or whatnot. And so I think um, taking the time to rather than just broadly saying ultrasound your patient and and use ultrasound specifically saying, look, I can see this, look, I can do that, um, has been the most fruitful. And so there's been like a couple times where I've went out marketing with one of our other surgeons who um, does a lot of knees. Uh, and I had done a, a scan for him of this guy who had just terrible, terrible knee pain and couldn't figure out. He had an MRI and it was really nonspecific. And I looked at the, with ultrasound and, um, he had, uh, essentially kind of a acute gout flare within his LCL ligament, which the MRI didn't specifically show. It just sh showed like a lot of edema. Um, and so the ultrasound was pretty helpful in making a specific, uh, diagnosis and managing it. Cause, uh, we did a 
kind of a lavage and then a steroid injection. And otherwise, if I hadn't done that, he probably would have gone on to surgery to debride the the edema. And I think the MRI even called that it was could have been a full thickness LCL tear. So he could have had like a uh, LCL repair for even though it didn't fit the rest of the injury patterns. And so that specific case is now like stuck in my knee surgeon's mind to say, all right, if there's kind of a unclear diagnosis that doesn't fit everything, well, we can take a look at it with ultrasound and it might add to the overall kind of uh, knowledge of what's going on. Dr. Moore is very humble, but but I think she what 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 she describes here is one, be really good at ultrasound and I, I think that is so important. If you pick up ultrasound and just start doing it, it's going to be hard to convince anyone to refer anything to you. Um, on the other hand, if you really put in the time, and I'm not talking dozens of hours or hundreds of hours, more like in the thousand range of hours to learn. And for med students and residents, what I did when I was in my residency at, at, at MU and then again in Stanford, we met once a week. Uh, we, we, me, me and a couple of fellow, uh, residents would meet every Monday night and we did that for three years and we probably missed a quarter of them cause we couldn't, but we, three out of four per month we would meet and, um, we started talking about other stuff in patient rehab in the last couple of years it was mainly ultrasound and we, we would just scan each other and then we'd look at some abnormals. And then the same thing, uh, Adam 1040 was a resident with me when I was a fellow at Stanford. Now, now he's at, at Harvard and he and I met, I found someone who was interested in sports when I was a fellow, and we met almost every Sunday morning and scanned each other. We pick another part, and every week, pick another part. It takes a lot of time, lots of time, and course, courses, go go to a course, get a good book. Jacobson's is the best book for starters. Everyone should have that and have it uh, highlighted and underlined and read three times, and then then you get on to all these subspecial, subspecialty ultrasound books like injections and nerves and the big Bianchi Bible that I think Brittany and I probably have one of all those books and a couple of others also. But step one, be really good. Step two, what Dr. Moore uh, said is show your surgeons how this changes care. And it absolutely does. Geez. Um, once you get in from an injection standpoint, you once you get someone who send you a patient for kind of a dump. They tried a subcranial burst injection. They tried a glenohumeral injection. They didn't get better. And then you do their exam. You realize it's rotator cuff. And so you do a guided subcranial burst injection and they're cured. You send them to PT <laughs> and they're cured. Th- those are the cases that that really make a difference. And I, I, I do think we're fortunate now to have evidence, which we didn't have. We had very little 10 years ago when I was uh, starting my residency. And, and so going to surgeons when I was in residency was a lot harder because we didn't know that glenohumeral injections, for example, without an ultrasound miss almost half the time. And with ultrasound is 99% of, of, of the time accurate. Um, so I, I, I just totally agree with the, with what, what, what Dr. Moore is saying here, be, be good. And then, Learn to very politely don't show, don't be show offy, but in a very polite manner show your surgeons, hey, this is what I was able to do. This is what I found on my diagnostic scan. Show them a picture too. They'll, they'll love that stuff. Yeah, it's all about collaboration, and that's just another way to collaborate. Um, 
And I'm just going to highlight the fact that it takes a lot of time. I still pull out my Jacobson probably weekly. I have it on my computer as like the expert consult portion. I look at that all of the time. And the other thing as you're getting started with ultrasound, which I still consider myself getting started with ultrasound, is um, use, if you're going to get an MRI anyways, use that as a backup scan, make your diagnosis in your head, you're getting MRI anyways, test yourself and use that or or kind of other examples like that. Um, ultrasound is has a, such a steep learning curve um, that particularly when you're getting started, um, it's easy to overdiagnose um, things or or underdiagnose, I guess, as well. Uh, and so use all of the things you have available to you to kind of improve your overall knowledge set. Now, you've alluded to this, but what are some other possibilities aside from diagnosis and injections, which of course are crucial? What else can you do with ultrasound in your practice? There are these second generation procedures, which I should probably let Dr. Moore talk about because she trained uh, at the center that has uh, discovered, invented most of them, um, 10x procedures, which I've been doing in my practice, which is essentially a percutaneous tenotomy with a a needle that is powered by uh, ultrasound energy. Uh, So a teeny vibration at the end of the needle that essentially cuts and debreeds a tendon. It's a surgical debridement with much safer, less recovery time. Um, Patients do really well with tendinosis from that. Uh, Dr. Moore, do you want to get into some other second generation procedures that you're you're, you're, you're starting, starting to do? Um, so I think that, that was a good description. The first thing we did with ultrasound is, oh, look, I can see this. And then it evolved to simple injections. Okay. Now I can see the injectate going into the suprapatellar recess for any injection. And now it's manipulating things under ultrasound. And so, uh, 10X being one of those ultrasound guided trigger finger release where, um, you're taking essentially, uh, a no core needle or whatever other type of needle and cutting the A1 pulley ultrasound guided carpal tunnel release. There's a variety of techniques and ways to do that, um, where you're cutting the transverse carpal ligament under ultrasound. So it's the most minimally invasive way you do under a stab incision, local anesthesia. Um, what are some other uh, ultrasound guided fasciotomies for uh, chronic exertional compartment syndrome of the leg? It's pretty exciting that you get to do those sorts of procedures in the private setting outside of the academic environment. Yeah, it actually is a little easier because it tends to be less political in a private setting. And so um, like the ultrasound guided carpal tunnel release took a really long time at one specific institute uh, to get in practice because the surgeons there, I presume, felt um, like it was going to eat into their practice. And so in private practice, there's not as much red tape that you have to um, go through uh, as long as the other physicians in your group are comfortable with it. Uh, And so that's one of the benefits of private that um, I particularly like. Now tell me about regenerative medicine or how you go about regenerative medicine in your practice. Yeah. um, So regenerative medicine, orthobiologics is, is kind of considered an, an advanced uh, therapeutic, so you can consider it in just a, a injection based on the scale of kind of how you use ultrasound to an advanced procedure, because oftentimes you'll do it with tenotomy or other things as well. And certainly harvesting bone marrow aspirate um, is kind of an advanced procedure as well. Um, 
I feel like it's, I'm using it the same in private practice as I did in academics, um, in that uh, you're seeing patients and it's a legitimate option on the conservative to aggressive scale of management. And I laid out there for them. Um, I think the simplest way to talk about orthobiologics is with arthritis because um, you have a variety of things you can do conservatively whenever that fails. Surgery is the answer or is the kind of end end answer, but that's quite invasive. And so that's how I kind of roll out orthobiologics for like knee osteoarthritis. Well, steroids were underwhelming. Visco was underwhelming. We've done everything else, braces, therapy, and all of those are underwhelming. Um, and so using that as another tool in your toolbox. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's another tool in the toolbox. It's an option. And I, I like to put it out there when someone comes in with, let's say, mild medial compartment knee arthritis, I put that out there as an option the first time I meet somebody. And because if it was free, if resources weren't an issue, I would do PRP or a bone marrow concentrate procedure on just about everyone with pain, especially with any function deficit from even mild knee arthritis. It's not only not crazy to do it, but there is some very early suggestions in our evidence that we we might be slowing the progression of the arthritis, um, especially if we're doing an intraosseous um, bone marrow or PRP at the same time. So that said, I just put the options out there. It's another tool in the toolbox and then they, they get to choose. Price is the issue, and and I think in private practice we can do it less expensive than academics because we don't have as many people that have to get paid along the way. It's the practice overhead, and then it's us, and that's 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 really it. I, I think along those same lines, um, I completely agree. If if price wasn't an issue, I'd use PRP with Visco as a first line on all of my OA patients. But as price is an issue, it's usually those um, kind of higher level active people who are marathon runners or, or whatnot, and they're always in the therapy uh, gyms getting some PT for something. And so it's easy to get those patients if you have a good uh, relationship with the PTs in your in your world, because then they'll say, hey, you don't just have to live with that knee pain, which is what a lot of people think if they're particularly active is that you have to live with it until you can't, and then you have to get a knee replacement. And that's absolutely not true. There's a lot of things you can do in the um, throughout the, the phase of knee pain. And so um, having that PT to catch them and say, hey, have you thought about this? Um, and getting them into your office can be quite helpful. Once you get more uh, known in your community, then and PTs and primary care physicians start to know what you do. Even our orthopedic partners will start referring simply just for a regen- orthobiologic procedure, which I love doing for the right indication. I refuse to do it for the wrong indication. And there will still be some referrals that come in for PRP or bone marrow concentrate procedure for patellofemoral pain in a 15-year-old completely normal um, joint that just has some biomechanical issues with strength or lateral patellar tilt or tight quads, something that can be fixed, but not with PRP or bone marrow concentrate. We're not going to fix 
tight quads that are causing increased pressure under the patella that cause that patellofemoral pain through PRP or stem cell. So we've heard about teaching, research, ultrasound, regenerative medicine, all of these exciting things that you can do within a physiatry sports medicine practice out in the community. How would you walk a resident excited about all those pursuits through the process of getting a fellowship in this competitive field? I think my first advice, which one of my attendings at MU gave me, was to do what you love. Um, if For your extracurriculars, uh, if there's something that really excites you in med school, I, I, there are a couple uh, student groups I was really excited about. And uh, when I first heard about PM&R, it was intriguing. And so I contacted a PM&R attending and followed them on a, a weekend, just an inpatient. And then I thought that was really cool. So I followed them in clinic when one of my rotations had a, a half day that was empty. And then when I was in residency, same thing. When I had any extra time, I would, whether I was at the VA and it was a, a, a veterans holiday that the University of Missouri didn't take off, I would go follow the sports guy uh, who in our fellowship, or we had a private sports gal uh, also at my residency program that I would just go follow one of them and just get get more experience. As far as if if you don't love research, I wouldn't recommend getting too heavily involved, but I do think some small level at least of research is important just to know the process because that is the theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? I, I think just knowing how we know things is important and certainly has changed. Research isn't my favorite thing, but I, I, I did it. I did a good amount of residency and fellowship, mainly because I was just pa very passionate about the topic uh, different musculoskeletal and sports topics. Um, my story, the first research I ever did was for the free clinic uh, at University of Missouri be because we had no musculoskeletal specialists to see uh, people at the free clinics at, uh, in Columbia, Missouri. And, and so I just did a survey, very easy, cheap survey, nothing big enough to get published, but I got an abstract out of it and I was super passionate about this. And so my biggest advice is just follow, follow your passions. If there's something you're excited about, let, let that motivate you. I agree with that uh, completely. PMR and sports medicine is definitely getting uh, competitive and more competitive every single year. Um, but make sure that you are investing your time in things that you want to do and things that when you put on your CV, you can actually intelligently talk about. And, um, it's not just, a, you covered a, a 5k race one time, but kind of talk about the specifics of injuries or things that you saw or whatnot. Um, and having variety, I think can be helpful as well. Um, in terms of particularly if you're interested in sports, kind of having, that uh, variety of sports coverage and ultrasound um, activities like Dr. Kadavi was saying he would every week get together with his residents and uh, ultrasound each other or whatnot put that on your CV or talk about that um, and it just shows that you are kind of multi-dimensional and um, I think being as much as you're able to get contacts in the field and and connections and people who know you and um, kind of FaceTime with different people will be would be certainly helpful as well, whether that's at conferences or asking if there's research or other things that you can help with or assist or whatnot. 
Now, there are certainly a lot of sports medicine programs out there. What sets apart the fellowships where you trained or the PM&R sports programs in general versus maybe a PM&R resident going into a family or primary care-based sports medicine program? Yeah, they are different. And one of the things I, one of the many things I liked about Dr. Moore when I found out she wanted to come back home was her training was more heavily in ultrasound than my training. Her training was more heavily in second generation procedures and diagnostics than my training was. And that continues to benefit me and my practice because she teaches me new things all the time. My fellowship was a little heavier in team physician role. Uh, I would say probably the heaviest, which means that I spent a lot of a lot of time on the sidelines. But I also, it was very easy for me to smoothly transition to be a team physician for a couple professional teams in town. So I think the the point I'm making there is that there are quite a few elements that make up a fellowship, and some are have more time in one area than another. Some are better than one area than another. And obviously, there's personalities and fit and location that all make a big difference. Completely. Um, you broke it down very nicely, Dr. Kadavi. So when I think about residency or when I was going through fellowship and I, when I was applying for fellowships, I kind of broke all the programs down into three main areas. There's um, ultrasound skill. There's kind of the primary care or team physician aspect of things. And then the continuity of care aspect of things. And so the continuity of care is um, as a fellow, you have to make money for your program. That's how you exist uh, is you have to bill and charge and whatnot. And so some places have you do like an MSK continuity clinic where you're seeing your own patients and it's just like any other sports clinic. Um, some places have you work at like an urgent care. Some places have you cover the inpatient rehab unit um, and whatever your end goal is, you add up however much of ultrasound and primary care team sports and kind of that continuity aspect um, and it gets you what you get. And so my main goal was I really wanted to hone and further increase my ultrasound skills, my comfort level with procedures, with seeing someone from the actual procedure to afterwards, those uh, tenotomies and 10x procedures a week after it, the patient can look like they're doing terrible and it can be frightening and going through that and seeing that with as a as a trainee with someone over you saying no that's totally fine that's what I'm expecting I told you this is where you're going to be um, and you're going to get better in a couple weeks from now and so having that comfort level through fellowship um, was really what I wanted um, and then I guess the the fourth column would be kind of the mentorship that you have at the program the people at my program were just fantastic. My program director, Jake Sellen, and my assistant program director, Jay Smith, could not have asked for more supportive mentorship. They're still there for me anytime I have a question right now. And so that's fantastic. And it really kind of um, sets the stage for what, how you want to kind of mold your practice going forward when you have such good mentorship and see kind of um, how quality things can be. Switching gears a little bit, how have you guys adapted throughout the past year of massive societal change with COVID-19? How have you continued your practice at such a high caliber? Well, telemedicine was big from the start. And I, I think you know, there are a lot of advantages of private practice. And I'm very biased because I think I have the ideal practice. Uh, but one advantage is being able to start something 
without going through 10 layers of, of uh, leadership and bureaucracy. So we, we were able to, it, the, the, the worst part for me in that first uh, couple weeks of the shutdown, the lockdown was thinking that my patients, we would just be in isolation and they, they wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to continue our care. And so we did a lot, we did a lot of telehealth, you know, so much so that I, there are a couple of patients I was able to make some uh, more zebra type diagnoses over telehealth from showing them how to do certain exam maneuvers and explaining them and, or having their spouse do some things on them and watching them do it. But as things eased up a little bit, I still try to do as much telehealth as we can, uh, try to keep people out of clinic if, if at all possible. But if, um, if, if, it, if they're hurting enough, then they'll come in now. And we're essentially doing all of our procedures that we ever have done. But if they can, if, if it's not necessary, then we'll keep them at home. Instead of doing three viscos, we'll do what we'll, we're trying to, I'm trying to do everything in a single um, monovisc or syndisc one, uh, and so so they just come come in in one visit. We're trying to do as much in one stop as possible. For me, I'm kind of learning the answer to that. For the first kind of five months of shutdown, I was still at my uh, past academic practice. Um, one of the things that I think is very fortunate in our field is uh, with those kind of second generation procedures that are pre-surgical to now surgical, like with the carpal tunnel releases with ultrasound guidance, while it's much less riskier for one staff to do ultrasound guided carpal tunnel release than to have that patient go into a giant OR with uh, anesthesia who's going to intubate them and all these other things. And so it's um, if things kind of wind up closer to the initial shutdown that we had in March, uh, it's much less riskier and still high quality to manage patients with the more minimally invasive approaches that we have access to as uh, ultrasound physiatrists. Dr. Kadavi, Dr. Moore, I thank you for your time. On behalf of all the PMNR residents and fellows out there listening, we certainly are inspired by the practice you guys have established and the example that you set for our profession. Yeah, thanks for putting this together, Ben. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next episode of Association of Academic Physiatrists podcast for more unique interviews and insights into physiatry.